going to continue on from where we were last week. And we're going to ask the question, why doesn't God stop the suffering? Because he could. I'm sure you've asked yourself that, that question at times. And particularly when you're actually suffering, you, know, you, 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 you want to know, why doesn't God stop this? He could stop this if he wanted to. And that's, that's, by the way, the point where the enemy loves to sweep in in your life and let you know that uh, the reason is that God doesn't love you, which is an outright lie. Right? But I want you to see in Exodus chapter 4. By the way, you need a sheet of paper and a pen uh, for this one because we've got a little exercise to do. Simple thing. It's not going to be something that's difficult for you to do. Uh, very straightforward for you to do. But in Exodus chapter 4, uh, God has called Moses and he wants to, Moses to go into Pharaoh and set his people free. Now, Moses is 80 years old and he's really gone beyond the point where he thought he was going to be the great man that he thought he was. And he's looking at himself and he's saying, I can't do this. And really what he's saying is, I don't want to do this. Right? So, um, so in verse 10, and Moses said unto the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. In other words, I can't go in. I can't talk to Pharaoh. I've got, I, I, I don't have the words to say to him. And what God says to him is very instructive for us as well. And the Lord said unto him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf, or the seeing or the blind? Have not I set the Lord? Now, a couple of thoughts for you there. First of all, if you can speak today, it's because God said he made you that way. Now, and if somebody else can't speak, it's because God made them that way. It's a very individual thing. But God actually made you with certain abilities, right? So that uh, we're, 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 people don't just randomly suffer uh, a lack of something in their lives. God purposefully made them that way. And that's, that's, that's different. That's important for us to get our heads around, that God purposefully made somebody who can't see. In John chapter 9, and by the way, notice this, that God does not shy away from taking responsibility for it. He's not apologetic about it at any point. Uh, when God does something in your life, um, he takes responsibility for it. Right? So in John chapter 9, we see the outplay of this uh, in the blind man that Jesus heals. And the disciples want to know uh, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus says this to him. To them, no, nobody did. He was born this way for the glory of God. And he doesn't say to the blind man, I'm really sorry you had to endure this for my glory. You know, this has been rough on you. you you've had 30 years of life without being able to see uh, for my glory. He doesn't do that. Uh, Jesus takes full responsibility for it and unapolog unapologetically so. Right? Now, so what's our point then here? Our point is this, that the things that happen in our lives don't happen randomly. They come from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father, and they come very definitely and very individually. You and I are made with certain abilities, and we're made, all made with certain disabilities too. There are things I can't do. Important that you realize uh, those things that you can't do because you, you, you get yourself in a lot of trouble trying to do things uh, that you're not 
uh, good at doing that you're not able to do. But there are things that I'm good at doing as well. Now, it's not just random, and it's not because I'm a great guy or you're a great woman or a great guy. It's because God made you that way. God made you with certain abilities, with certain giftings, with certain things that he put into you, uh, that he put in there for a purpose. And it's very important that we actually understand that. Because we, we, we live in a world, obviously, that does not recognize God. And we're much more affected by the thinking of the world than, than we like to think we are. Um, it, it, the thinking of the world impacts us in ways that we, that we can't imagine. One of the great impacts of our day uh, is evolution. Evolution has affected the world. In fact, I'm going to talk to you about the about the um, about the, the fact that we're made in the image of God. But let me say this: Peter Singer, and, and he's an atheist. Uh, he argues that in the absence of God, human beings have no more value or uh, moral intuition than any other animal. He says, whatever the future holds, it is likely to prove impossible to restore in full the sanctity of life. We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God and singled out from all other animals. A better understanding uh, of our own nature has bridged the gulf that once was thought to be between ourselves and other species. So why should we believe that uh, the mere fact that being a member of the species Homo sapiens uh, endows uh, its life with some unique, almost infinite value, right? Now, now, now catch what he's saying there. It's totally wrong, by the way. Completely wrong, completely in error. Uh, and he's he swallowed the lie of evolution. But what he's saying to you is, look, we're no different than the animals. We can't make a case for us being a special creation. We can't make a case for us because we know better now. Now, that's the thinking that's at large in our society. Not everybody believes it, not every unsafe person believes it, but everybody is affected by it. Because that's the norm as far as thinking is concerned. Now, I, I, really we have to counter that in our own minds. If we don't counter the thinking of the world, it tends to just swallow us up. I, I'm a special creation made in his image for an internal purpose. So are you. You are a special creation made in his image for an eternal purpose. He's got a plan. He's got to work. He made, he made you with certain abilities. He made you with certain disabilities. He made you with things you can do and things that you can't do. And he made you with those for his purpose, but not just for this word, for an eternal purpose. And what evolution has done is evolution has stolen that view. Evolution has taken that away. And to some extent, uh, in as much as evolution affects our thinking, we lose the edge of that view. When we lose the edge of that view, it affects us in our suffering because our suffering becomes random, meaningless. And that's not true. None of my suffering is random or meaningless. I have a loving Heavenly Father who's working in my life and who's dealing with me. Um, if God is real and God is loving, pain will be the cost of love. Real love is simply not possible without freedom of choice. Compelled love is never love. The possibility of love entails the possibility of pain, right? So if I am loved by a heavenly father who made me 
for a purpose, then, and he gave me free will, then it's going to entail pain at some level. Because I'm going to choose the wrong thing sometimes. Right? And th th there's going to be that pain. But it's not random, meaningless suffering. There's a God who's involved in all of it, uh, who's working in my life. If I couldn't speak today, it would be because God. Right? If you couldn't see or can't see tomorrow, it would be because God. And that's, that's hard. I mean, obviously there are random events or apparently random events that come into our lives that, that affect us and that change things for us. But the random events are not outside the sovereign will of God. So ultimately, it's God. All right. The Christian faith understands darkness and suffering as having come into the world as a direct result of our human exercise of moral choice. And so suffering is real. It hurts. And it really hurts. Because we are more than our biochemistry. We are not here by accident. Human life has a transcendent source. We are bearers of the image of God. And in some, dense, in some deep way, we sense this in ourselves and others, even those we will never know intimately. Even if we don't believe in God, Christian faith understands life to be precious at the ultimate level. And that means that it will matter um, at the deepest level when we or others are in pain. This might help us understand why the human experience of pain is so acute. Right? Now, um, I'm trying to give you an example here, and it, it's a little bit tarnished because we're all tarnished with the idea of evolution. In other words, evolution kind of works forwards and backwards, right? There's nothing out there forwards, but it also works back into animal life. If, if you and I are just animals, then animal life is just as important as human life. All right. Now, how do you feel when you see a dead fox on the road? I feel good, but that's one of my uh, problems that I need to deal with. If, if a fox had eaten 16 of your chickens, you'd feel good when you saw a dead fox uh, on the road as well. They're just, uh, <clears throat> anyway, the, the, that's besides the point. But when you see a dead fox on the road, you go, ooh. What if you saw a dead body on the road? A human being. That's a completely different thing, isn't it? That's something you might not, you might never get over in your life. That's something that would just stick in your memory and uh, and it would be there. Yeah, there's an element of, okay, obviously that you haven't seen it, but there's something about a human body that is very different from an animal body. There's something when we look at that body that, you know, there's something about the image of God in the whole thing that just arrests us, right? God puts those things in us. And we don't understand that and recognize that, that. We are very different from the creatures around us. We are not the same. And, and don't do the backwards thing, you know, that evolution wants to do uh, in making, you know, uh, the sanctity of animal life. Yes, I think we should be good stewards of the animals uh, around us. Uh, and I don't think we should cause need, needless pain to any uh, animal. But I do understand this, that animals are put there for our benefit and that we've got uh, the use of them, right? It's not the same. It's not the same thing as uh, a human being. And that's one of the lies that's, that, that's gone into our society and into our uh, culture, 
that, that affects everything. It's changed the way we look at things completely. And it changes very much the way we look at ourselves if we let it in when it comes to this thing of suffering. Because my suffering matters. I have a loving Heavenly Father who is intimately involved in my suffering. It's not for no reason, and it's not that he couldn't stop it. It's because he's involved in it. He has a purpose for it. He wants to do something in my life in an eternal capacity. And the same is true for you in every area where you suffer. You say, what about the areas where I suffer because of my own foolishness? Well, that, 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 that makes it a little bit harder for us, but it's still the same. You don't suffer uh, apart from God allowing it to happen. He is sovereign. He is in control of everything. And so the suffering that you bring into your life uh, has to come through the hands of a heavenly father. And he loves you. He wants your best. All right, so quickly over last week's stuff, and then I, then I want to move on uh, to our question for today, right? Uh, is God's power limited, right? Uh, no. With God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, verse 26. And we talked about Rabbi Kirshner, who tragically lost his uh, teenage son, and he decided that uh, God was, was good, but he wasn't all powerful. And so what he did was uh, he, he created a picture of a kind-hearted God who would stop anything bad from happening if only he could. That's not true. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God Jesus talked to. That's not the God we see in the Bible. We serve a God who is fully in charge and can stop anything. And again, uh, while it might be somewhat comforting uh, to, to think that, you know, <clears throat> well, God would have stopped it if he could. What you end up doing is you end up damaging your theology there, your picture of who God is. And when you do that, uh, you're in a place where God is not God, and there is nobody in control, and you're in a random world. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us we've got all things uh, are possible. Then the, the second thing people say uh, is that God's knowledge is limited. Well, that's not true either. And um, you, you will hear the open theist view. And what they're saying is this, right? That God created mankind, uh, and, but he didn't know how mankind would respond uh, to the freedom. In fact, they often will say that, that uh, had God known that, he, he, he maybe wouldn't have created mankind. Well, that's not true. First John 3.20 says that he knows all things. <clears throat> you know, we can go through the Bible and God tells people what's going to happen before it ever happens. God names the stars. They just send a new uh, telescope uh, into space. I think it's 150,000 kilometers from Earth right now. And they're, they're expecting to be able to see um, where the beginning of the world started uh, with their telescope. Because there's trillions of stars out there. God knows them all by name. There's nothing. God's not going to discover anything. Uh, about this world. He, there's nothing that he doesn't know. Remember, we talked last week about Peter. Uh, God told him, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. He didn't say before the cock crows three times, you will deny me four times. He didn't make a good guess. He knew exactly what Peter was going to do. And he knew exactly when Peter was going to do it. And God knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. There's, 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 there's 
absolutely nothing that God is not in, in charge of. Right? And then, is God's goodness limited? Uh, one man wrote this, I affirm that God is good, but not perfectly good. Now, that's a common thought in paganism. Remember the pagan gods? You know, or, or you, if you even look at the Greek gods or, or any of those gods, those gods, you know, <clears throat> could do great good, but they had their moments when they could do great bad too. And the, the whole thesis of paganism is this, that you have to keep whatever God it is that you're serving happy. You have to keep him off your back because if he turns on you, uh, it'd be really, really bad. Now, and when we say that God's goodness is limited, what we're doing is we're, we're really reducing it uh, to the pagan God. He is completely good. There is nothing in him uh, that is not good. Um, theologian Wayne Gruden says this, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Right? So that everything God does is good. Now, the reality is everything God does is not going to appear good to you and I. You know, um, the things that God allows happen in our lives, it's, it's not all going to appear good. And we need to grapple with that. But are we really the standard of what's good? Can, can we know the good that God is going to do through what he does in our lives? Well, we really can't, can we? You know, we, we like to think that we do, but, but when it comes down to it, we don't know. Um, what God is doing in our lives, and we don't have the ability to actually work in where it's going. And again, that's one of those things that's very easy for us to sit and talk about on a nice, comfortable Wednesday night when we're all in our cozy homes. But <clears throat> that's still true, regardless uh, of whether I'm in pain or not at a given moment. God is always good. You see, the beginning of faith is this. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he is God. And when we say that he is God, we have to accept, believe that he is God as he says he is in the scripture. All right. He is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. He is all good. He is love, and there are several others that we need to add to it, too. But we need to, if we're, if we're going to have faith, we need to believe that this God we serve is. And then we need to believe, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, a lot of times in my life, I have felt greatly rewarded for, for walking with God. But there have been moments when it looked like any, like I was being anything but rewarded. And what we have to do, faith has to kick in there. No, he is a rewarder. He has done me good in the past. He will do me good in the future. He says it in his word, and I believe it. And faith is a very gutsy thing when it comes down to that. Uh, you you got to come past the, the place with faith where faith is just something that uh, you kind of feel and, and, and you feel good about and come to the place where you recognize, no, you know what? This God is good no matter how I feel. we got to come to that place where, where, where Job 
uh, said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's that's an act of faith. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's an, that's an act of bold faith, a bold declaration of faith uh, in, you know, <clears throat> in the face of what looks completely different to what he believes. But we do have to come to that place where, where we make that bold declaration of faith. No, no, our God is good. Number four uh, is this. Is God's love limited? Many people start to doubt God's love when terrible things happen to them. Often it's because we define love in superficial ways, uh, setting us up to question God in hard times. But the Bible speaks repeatedly of God's unfailing love or his steadfast love, uh, as in Psalm 51 verse 1. God's constant love for us will never let us down, no matter how things appear. Right now, and we have to understand that we have to uh, lay hold upon that. The Bible says that God commanded Romans five eight, but God commanded His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that talks about you being unlovely. You're a sinner, and Christ showed you love by dying for you when you were a sinner. Now, we like to have the notion that God loves me because I'm nice. Right? God loves me because I'm lovable. And we're kind of stuck on that at some level uh, in our hearts and in our lives. That's not what uh, is actually happening here. God loved me when I was completely unlovable, when I was lost in sin, doing my own thing, living my own way and going my own way. God loved me then. And he doesn't love me less now uh, because uh, I'm walking with him. You see, that's very important because the, the, the beginnings of God's love for me is not found in me as it is in every other relationship. Something in you uh, appeals to somebody and, and they love you because of that. The beginning of God's love for me is found in him. I was unlovable. I didn't earn it. I couldn't earn it. But he loved me anyway. And that's very important for us. Because here's what happens. You see, we go along for a while. And we're trying to do right. We're trying to walk with God and do the best we know. And um, then we come to a place where we get it wrong. And we mess up or something comes into our lives. And we think, hang on a minute. Does God love me? And that's the devil's playground there for you. That's what he played with Eve over. Uh, and that's what he played with you over. Does God, does God really love me? No, God loved me when I was at my very worst. And he's not going to stop loving me now. He didn't, you know, give me an injection of love at that point and say, no, they want you to earn it from now on. No, God loves me. Right? So, we need to get our head around a very strange thing for us to understand that God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He, he loves me because he loves. That's who he is. And I get to come into this relationship where I can love him back. But he doesn't wait for me to be lovable. He loves me because of who he is. I can never lose that. I'm never going to get to the place where God's going to stop loving me. And that's a very <clears throat> strange thought to us as human beings. Now, now let me give you uh, something to think about there as well. 
we also get in trouble when we come to the place where we think that God's love cancels out some of his other attributes. Right? God, God is love. God is also holy. And God's demonstration of love in my life when I'm walking with him and living for him uh, is going to be different than God's demonstration of love in my life when I'm going my own way and doing my own thing. You know what? Any one of us that have walked with God for any length of time know that. But here's the question. Is it still love? Right? The parent who takes a child who's, who's uh, you know, done something wrong and deals with that child. Is that love? Yeah, if you've done that, that's the hardest thing in the world. The last thing you want is to cause pain to that little bundle that you love. The last thing you want is to have them uh, react to you in an awful way because they, they think you're trying to hurt them. But the Bible says that he that loveth his child corrected them three times. That he deals with them. And so <clears throat> you and I need to understand that, that because God doesn't, because God's love for me is not always going to manifest itself in the same way. In other words, God, can God let me suffer and still love me? Yeah, he can. That's not a problem as far as God's concerned. Uh, <clears throat> right? But he, he, you and I need to understand that, that God is able to love me, and yet at the same time, he is will allow pain and suffering into my life. And that's, that's very important to us in this point of suffering because if we don't catch that, what happens is we get shaken uh, on God's love. And when we don't feel he loves us, then, then we, we, we come rapidly to the place where it all begins to unravel. Because he that comes to God, faith demands that I believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Well, if, if, if I come to him, and I find fault in him that he doesn't love me because I've got a misconception of what love is, then I'm in trouble. Right? So you you really got to grapple with that thought. And when you suffer, you've got to come to that place where you're saying, no, I will not go down the road of thinking that God doesn't love me. And if you need to get someone to talk in your ear and help you with that, do. But don't let yourself go down the road of feeling that God doesn't love you. That God loves everybody else, but he doesn't love you. Because what, because what that does is that just makes your pain meaningless or worse than meaningless. It means that uh, you're not cared for. And, and it makes your pain much, much worse. Right? And, and it puts, a, it, it puts a, a distance between you and the God that you need to actually reach down and put an arm around you uh, in the hard time. See, you, you've got to dig in on that, know that God does love me and nothing uh, can change the fact that God loves me. So uh, if you should lose your sight in the morning, if you should lose your ability to speak in the morning, if you should lose your ability to hear in the morning, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because he's forgotten about you. Uh, it's not because he's actually uh, cast you to one side. It's because he has a plan and a purpose in it. All right, so here's our question for tonight. Why doesn't God immediately bring evil and suffering to an end? Now, you're going to feel that when you're suffering, right? Why doesn't God actually take and bring it to an end? Well, why doesn't he take it away? Why doesn't he take away the pain? 
Right? Why doesn't he take away the hurt? Why doesn't he take away the tears? Well, let's tease through some reasons. And let me let me put an overarching reason in your mind as far as this thought's concerned, right? God is dealing with you as an eternal being with an eternal future, and he has got a plan for that future. And we want this life to be easy and peaceful and comfortable. And our, our false theology will often say to us, you know, it will be easy and peaceful uh, if God loves me. And, um, but that, that's a wrong theology. God wants you prepared for eternity. And so he's willing to let you suffer pain to get you better ready for eternity. Right. Okay. So, so, so the thought I'm putting in for you there is eternal. God is working a big picture, much bigger than you and I uh, can even see or think about. So that means God's going to do things that I really won't understand, that I won't be able to get my head around. Um, but He's going to do them uh, for a good purpose. All right. So let me give you some reasons. Right. And by the way. We'll talk about it. We won't get to it tonight, but we will talk about it. There is a theology out there that says, this is Jesus died to bring us healing. Then why are we suffering and why are we sick? And sometimes they'll tell you it's because of a lack of faith and it gets put back on you. That's a wrong theology. That's a, that, 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 that's a, uh, a seriously, a serious error. All right. <clears throat> right. Is there healing in his blood? Yes. One day, praise his name. Uh, all your pain, your physical pain, all your physical troubles will be gone. Uh, your, your, sight, sight, your eyesight won't be 2020. It will be whatever heaven is, which is much better than 2020. And then your hearing will be perfect. Uh, you will be able to run. You will be able to do things that you can't do on this earth. He's going, you're going to be infinitely better than you are right now. Right, but he didn't say he was going to do it right now. Nowhere did he say he was going to do it right now. Okay, so some of the reasons, right? First, by delaying his final judgment on evil and waiting longer to wipe away all tears from his children's eyes, he is giving more people an opportunity to become part of his eternal kingdom, bringing more good to them and bringing more glory to himself. Uh, God is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, uh, but. Uh, uh, he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what's God doing? God is keeping the doors open for as long as he can, so that as many people can come in. As many people as can can come in. And while you and I would want our suffering to end, we don't want the door to be closed before people come in. And you, and you, you long for the rapture, you long for the return of the Lord, and I do certainly. But on the other hand, I mean, when the thought of other people being being saved comes up, you want that too. So, so God is keeping things going, though He could stop them, because He's looking to bring people in to His kingdom. Right? Okay, another one is our God-given humanity necessitates this process by which we mature and grow in humility, perspective, and faith. If we have faith in Christ, then God has declared us to be righteous through his death. But God also wants us to become righteous 
God is not only preparing a place for us, he's preparing us for that place. Now, catch that. I mean, you are righteous in his eyes, right? But are you really righteous? Well, no. You know what? If you look at your life, it's not perfect. And you haven't gotten it all right since you've been saved. So what is God doing? He is working out the righteousness he has already put in you, or he has already given you. He's trying to kind of reconcile you and what he says you are. He's trying to reconcile you. He's trying to put you uh, in the place where you are actually what he says you are. You're as righteous as he says you are. Right? And you'll notice this, that, that as you walk with God and as you learn to lean on him, depend upon him, uh, things do fall away out of your life. and You do get to be closer uh, to what he wants you to be than you were when you started off. Now again, you're not going to achieve sinless perfection in this world. But in a sense, that's the goal. That you drop away all those things that are displeasing to him. Uh, I like this. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, uh, to ask that God's love should be content with us uh, as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and impelled by certain stains in our present character, right? Can you see that yourself? That God loves you because he would love. But there are certain things about you that a holy God has to overcome to love. I know you don't like hearing that, do you? Uh, and yet that's true, right? So um, C.S. Lewis says this, and because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. In other words, when it comes to your righteousness, what God is doing is he's trying to bring you up to the level of righteousness that he's already given you. When it comes to your lovableness, he's trying to make you as lovable as he treats you. And he's working in your life to bring those things about so that here's the thing what god is doing in your life is in no ways meaningless what he's doing in your life is actually working in and through you working through you with difficulties and with problems to bring you to where he says you are already right so now what we call that in theological terms is you know we are sanctified the moment we are saved Right? In other words, we have positional sanctification. If I died right now, I am perfectly holy before a holy God. Why? Because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, when, when I see him, that's going to be true of me. But there's a progressive sanctification going on right now. In other words, what he's doing in our lives right now is he is making us holy. He's, he's bringing us up to uh, what it is. He says we are. He's bringing us up to that place where we're holy. Uh, he's working in our lives to, to make us all that he says we are. And when we enter into glory, that will have impact. That will be part of it, right? Then, although this world is far from best, uh, the best it could possibly be, its present condition may indeed be the best way to achieve the best possible world. A world that had never been touched by evil would be a good place, but would it be the best place possible? 
If we acknowledge, for example, that evil and suffering often bring out significant human virtues, we must answer no. What's he saying there? Watching something about um, today and um, somebody who had dreadful difficulty in their lives, but a glowing testimony, an absolutely glowing testimony. Now, here's your question. Would they have the glowing testimony without the difficulty? Would Corrie ten Boom have been Corrie ten Boom without Auschwitz? Or would she just have been another sweet believer? All right. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata. Would Joni Erickson Tata be Joni Erickson Tata if she hadn't had that problem with her spine? If she hadn't become a quadriplegic? Well, no. She wouldn't, would she? Right? And what we see is we see that God very often takes some great difficulty in our lives to move us ahead in ways that we couldn't have imagined and ways that we wouldn't have chosen. I don't think you could ever get Joni Erickson Tata to choose uh, her suffering. Not ahead of time anyway. In hindsight, she might. Right? But isn't it true that the suffering is often exactly what makes the person? So although you and I would remove evil from the world very quickly, we might spoil it in its ultimate purpose. Its ultimate purpose being to prepare people um, for, for heaven, right? Now, here, here's, our, here's our, our exercise for tonight, right? I want you to take a sheet of paper and I want you to fold it in half, right? You fold it in half like this. And then here's what you're going to do. You're going to fold it out. Right? You have a line down the middle. And on the right, on the top of the page, you're going to write down the worst things that happened in your life. Okay? And you don't need to show anybody this, so don't feel that you have to kind of uh, display this. But then underneath it, you're going to write the best things that have happened in your life. Okay? So the worst things on the top of the page and the best things on the bottom of the page. I just do a couple now, a couple on, either, uh, uh, on the top and a couple on the bottom. And here's the, here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find that in God's sovereign will, there's an overlap between the worst things and the best things. In other words, the best things couldn't have happened without the worst things. How, how is that? That's because God is sovereign and he's working in your life. So what does that tell us? That tells us that in order to bring about the best for us, God sometimes has to allow the worst of what we see as the worst to happen in our lives. And it's painful. There's no denying that it's painful. But when it brings out what God intended for it to bring out in our lives, oftentimes 
But we still kind of might grimace at the pain. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, that was good. But what that produced in my life was good. Many of us came to the Lord because of some pain or difficulty or problem or emptiness or lack or whatever in our lives. Right? Now, you wouldn't have chosen the pain, the lack, or the emptiness in your life. But if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be saved. If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be drawn to the Lord. And that's just a small part of what we can see. We haven't got eyes to see as Spurgeon said. All that God is doing with the difficulties he brings into our lives. What we have to do is we have to trust by faith. That God is actually at work and he's working things out for his glory and for my good. And he's getting it right. He is getting it right. I think sometimes we can feel shortchanged. Sometimes we feel like we failed. Sometimes we feel like we've wasted time. We've lost stuff. We've lost people on the line. But I think we have to come back to the scripture with all of us. Because the Bible says that all things work together for good. To those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Right? And that he was conforming you to the image of his son. He's preparing you for heaven. So that everything in my life ultimately is productive in that it helps me to be more like Christ and prepares me for heaven and for the work God has for me in heaven. Now, if I can catch that and understand that, that my great heavenly father is working in my life to do a good thing, then suffering is so much better. You will suffer whether you accept it or not. What happens is how you suffer. And you and I can suffer well. We can go, go through difficulties and go through them well. Doesn't mean there's no pain. It doesn't mean it's not problematic for us. But we can go through things and we can go through things hand in hand with the Savior, with the God who promises never to leave us, not forsake us. Or we can react, get upset, and fail to recognize his part in it, and end up with the suffering being much harder. But when we recognize his hand and what he's doing in us, then not only is the suffering easier, but it's much more productive in our lives. Because he's got a plan for it, he's got a plan for you. All right, that's a word of prayer. And then I want to want to give you a chance to ask questions. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word to us. And oh, Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that you own it, that you own, you take responsibility for everything that happens in your world. Now, would you bless us? Would you help us to see you as big, uh, as above all of it, and help us to understand that your will works in all of it. And oh, Lord, help us to rest in you and to draw near to you uh, when we hurt, Lord, rather than drawn away. And Lord, we thank and praise you. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.